Perfecto. All right, good deal. Um, so I was inspired by our men's Bible study. Uh, and so next week we're going to begin a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians was actually the first letter written by Paul in the Bible. And Timothy was one of the last letters written by Paul. It's written about 15 years later. And they're very different letters. And I'm excited to be following one with the other because I think our church is in a, a good place to receive the message of Galatians. But we're going to finish Timothy this morning. And I'm very excited about this text because it is a great, uh, it's a great passage of Scripture. We're going to begin reading verse 11, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. It says, But as for you, O man of God, that's Timothy, flee these things. And if you remember from two weeks ago, Paul was talking about specifically the love of money. So he's saying, Timothy, flee from the love of money. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So Paul addresses Timothy as a man of God, which is a title that's not used very often in the Bible. And so he's calling Timothy to this, this better life, this godly life. And if you look at the list of qualities, they are very similar to the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed in Galatians 5, which we'll study in a few months. He's saying to Timothy, this is how I want you to live. This is what I want your life to look like. And that's not legalism. That's the result of God's Spirit at work in Timothy's life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's also a really simple description of repentance. Repentance is when we run from something bad and we run to something good. He says, flee. Pursue, right? With urgency, without hesitation. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Run from it. There's a lot of energy in this verse, and Paul keeps this energy going in verse 12. He says this, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul says, fight, Timothy. Fight. Take hold of eternal life. And take hold in Greek is not like gingerly picking up your coffee mug to take a sip. Take hold means to violently seize or grab something like a wrestler grabbing an opponent. Grappling. Okay, so I want you to think jujitsu, right? This is, this is like Jacob 
wrestling with the Lord. He says, Timothy, I want you to latch on to eternal life like a dog latches on to a bone. Don't let go. Reminds me of one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 10.23. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Hold fast without wavering. And in both cases, the writer is emphasizing what? Holding fast to our future hope. He's saying we have a better chance of fighting the good fight today if we hold fast to our hope for tomorrow. And that makes perfect sense because our hope for tomorrow is what? It's that the fight is already won. The battle is already finished. Christians already know how this struggle ends, right? And that's valuable information. I want you to imagine, this will sound familiar to some of you who are my age, I want you to imagine traveling 20 or so years into the future in a DeLorean <laughs> and, and buying a book that tells you the outcome of every major sporting event for the past 20 years. Every March Madness bracket filled out to perfection. Every Champions League winner. Every World Cup champion. Okay? If you knew that information today, you'd make a lot of money. Imagine knowing today, right now, this instant, imagine knowing that death is already defeated and that one day God is going to wipe away every tear. Imagine knowing that, right? He's saying, take hold of that. Tackle that to the ground. It's the most important thing to affect the life that you're living right now. There's nothing more important than that for the Christian than to take hold of the information that eternal life waits for you. Seize that. That information is far more valuable than knowing who's going to win the national championship. If you believe it's true. Do you believe it's true? You believe that death is not the end. So how do we do this? How do we violently grasp eternal life, which is what he's asking us to do? Okay, Paul tells Timothy that he should remember two things. I want you, Timothy, to remember your calling to the faith and your confession about the faith. In other words, Paul says, I want you to remember the promises that God made to you in Christ, and I want you to remember the promises that you made to God in public. Okay? So I want you to remember God's promises, 
and your promises. Which incidentally, this is why we adopt members of our church by a public profession of faith. It's very hard to forget that. And that's on purpose. But do you sense the energy starting to build here? And as Paul continues, what this sounds like to me is more and more, it sounds like a coach giving a halftime speech to his players. Listen in, verse 13. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now do you see what Paul just did for us in writing? He demonstrated exactly what it looks like for a Christian to take hold of eternal life. It looks like worship. That's what it looks like. He starts talking about Jesus and thinking about Jesus. And then he breaks into this grand announcement and he sounds like Michael Buffer introducing the heavyweight champion of the universe, doesn't he? In this corner we have the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord. Like if you read it in that voice, it's like that's what he's doing. And how do I know that this is what he means by taking hold of eternal life? I know it because he's talking about what? The second coming of Jesus. It's like, entrance, it's like an entrance announcement, right? The second coming of Jesus, and he specifically mentions the immortality of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, what is our hope? Our hope is that we share the inheritance of Jesus because we're united to Him. And Paul can't handle the thought of this. He's in rapture over it. And so he breaks into worship to show us what it looks like to take hold of eternal life. Now, I want everybody to take a deep breath. Let it out. Okay. Common sense would tell us that we have come to the end of the letter. Right? And you, how could you possibly end any better than this, right? I mean, this is probably how I would end the letter. Except this is not how Paul ends the letter. There's more. And it's completely, in my mind, it's very unexpected. Okay? So look what he says next. Verse 17. As for the rich 
in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That word means arrogant or prideful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now this is for me, in in my reading of the Bible, this is one of those screeching tire moments, right? So it's just so different than what he just said that you're supposed to kind of like be like, why, why this now, right? He's already talked about, two weeks ago, we talked about the dangers of loving money. Why does he bring this up again? And why does he bring it up here? And I think the answer to that question is actually pretty simple. It's because rich people have the hardest time taking hold of eternal life, of anybody. We have the most difficult time remembering and longing for our promised future hope. Why? Because of our present comfort. And isn't that exactly what Paul says? He says we can't place our hope in wealth and in God at the same time. It just doesn't work. And that's why we have such a hard time with this. That's why we're so scared of death. And so Paul adds this command, verse 18. They, that's rich people, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life so that they may, there it is again, take hold, same word, of that which is truly life, right? So what's he saying? He's saying, rich people, you can take hold of eternal life too. It's just more difficult for you. And I would say for us, because again, by the world's standards, we're all wealthy. And he's saying, it's not wrong to have money. I'm not telling you that it's a sin to be rich, right? The question is, what are we doing with it? Paul says, be generous. He says, be ready to share. Look carefully also at this, the first half of verse 19. Okay, look at it again. He says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now we know from the context of verse 18, he's, he's talking about storing up good works and generosity. But if you take it out of context, what does it sound like? It sounds like saving for retirement, doesn't it? I mean, storing up treasure for the future. If I just say that, what does that sound like to most Americans? Saving for retirement, right? Saving money for the future. Isn't it interesting 
that Paul uses that language to describe what he wants rich people to do, but he's not talking about money. I think that's interesting because it's certainly not how we think as Americans, right? But it, it forces, I think, this moment of conviction and maybe a moment of clarity for us. If I believe that my future hope is eternal life, that this doesn't end at death, then why am I so focused on providing a secure future for myself in this life? Why am I so focused on comfort? Why am I so worried about not completing my bucket list? Why am I not far more concerned with the people whom God has put in my life? and the people that I want to take with me into that eternal life, into the kingdom. If I really believe that to be true, if you don't believe it to be true, then you're wasting your time in church. I mean, go do something else. But if you do believe this to be true, is, is it not the legacy that matters most the people around us, people in our families, our friends, people in our church, the people, our neighbors, our co-workers, people that don't know Jesus. Is that not what matters most? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, nor do I think that Paul is teaching that it's wrong to save for retirement, okay? I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying don't do that. Okay. The Bible also says be dependent on no one. So I'm not, I'm not teaching you that. What I'm saying is don't waste your retirement. Or if you're wealthy and you're, you know, right now, I mean, don't waste what you have. Don't waste the resources that God provides on yourself. Don't waste the time not just your money, but your time, your, your talents, the things that God has given you, the gifts that He's given you for the sake of others. Take hold of eternal life. Store up good works and generosity. In verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you stewardship language, right? Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that's the end of the letter. And so Paul makes one last attempt to protect the church from false teaching, to protect the gospel, and then he ends with the simple blessing, grace be with you. About a year later, Paul wrote a second letter to Timothy. It's the very next letter in your Bible. And we're not going to study it together as a church, but I would encourage you to read it later. He says many of the same things in the second letter that he says in the first letter. 
But at the center of 2 Timothy is a verse from what we think is an early hymn or a creed in the church. It says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So it shows us that the life of the Christian that Paul expects is going to be characterized by sacrifice and suffering. Right? The path to life is one of death. The path to glory is one of endurance. We die with him. We endure. Right? No pain, no gain. No cross, no crown. But then he continues. If we deny him... He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Now that last part is a little confusing. Some have taken that to mean that even if we were to renounce our faith and you know, reject the faith, that we'll still be saved, right? So if you've ever made the profession, you're good, right? Well, we can't see into people's hearts, and we don't know whether or not anything has actually happened, right? We don't know who's a real person trusting and following Jesus and who's not. In context, that's not what this means at all, because it clearly says what? It says Jesus will deny us if we deny him. Which Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew 10.33. And so what I think Paul is saying, or what this creed is saying, is, uh, and I'm going to agree with John Calvin's interpretation of this verse. He says, Our faithlessness cannot in any way detract from the Son of God and His glory. Being all-sufficient in Him, He has no need of our confession. It is as if He had said, Let all who will desert Christ do so, for they deprive Him of nothing. When they perish, he remains unchanged. I think that's actually what this means. Now remember, when the New Testament was written, Christians were in great danger of actually being killed for their faith. Right? Paul himself was beheaded shortly after writing 2 Timothy. Remember also that Jesus, probably 20, 30 years later, sent a letter to Ephesus, the church, through the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 2. And in this letter, he says to them, you're not a perfect church, but he wrote this encouragement. Chapter 2, Revelation verse 2, says, Jesus says to the church, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, there's that word, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are, again, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Okay, So this is good news. What it tells us is that Timothy did a good job. It tells us that the church in Ephesus listened to Paul because a generation has come and gone and Jesus says, 
you're patiently enduring and you're testing the, the teachers, right? You're, you're sniffing out false teachers 30 years later. Good job, right? But Jesus is not finished. He continues. He says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, Galatians... I think, is going to allow us an opportunity as a church to remember our first love. It's one of the beautiful things about that letter. So we're going to go there next week. But for now, I simply want to end this way. I want to say to us, as brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to myself as well, please remember the Christian life isn't over until it's over. We don't enter in the door of Christ. We don't believe the gospel and then leave it in the past. And it's not a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? There is much more life to be lived in Christ. There is much more repentance in faith, right? Keep on fleeing sin, Timothy. Keep on doing it. Keep on pursuing righteousness grapple eternal life. Take hold of it continuously without ceasing. Keep on defending the Gospel. Stay generous. Stay humble. Why? Why? Because Jesus is more than worth it. Because all this is true. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, We know that You are the only true man of God. But by Your Spirit and by Your grace, You have called us into new life. You have given us a purpose and a hope and a future. And You have given us everything that we need. We we are lacking nothing. We are lacking nothing to be who You've called us to be by Your grace. We have the means, we have the word,